0: You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska, that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. We're going to turn our attention now to Philippians uh, chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 3 through 8 this morning. I want to pray a quick blessing over God's word before we dive in. So as you're turning there, if you would pray for me, I'm going to pray for for us. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we do thank you for your presence. And um, Lord, we thank you for your truth uh, that we find in your word. We know, God, that um, the truth sets us free. And uh, Father, we know there are many things deep inside of our hearts that uh, we need your spirit to be actively at work in through the preaching of your word. So God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning and that you would help us to draw close to you and that you would help us to hear uh, the words really of this love letter from you uh, to the through Paul, to the Philippian church, and, and really uh, to us. So God, I pray that you would do that. Help us to experience your deep love this morning and trust you to do that work in Jesus name. Amen. So we've been in the book of Philippians now for the last two weeks. We're going to be there for a while as we make our way slowly through this book. Um, This letter uh, is written by Paul and this letter that he wrote to the Philippian church has been described as his most personal letter to any of the churches that he planted and pastored. So uh, the pages of this book, the book of Philippians, uh, they're literally saturated with his deep love, his deep affection, and his deep longing for the church family. Some people have even said that reading this letter from the Apostle Paul to the Philippian church is kind of like eavesdropping on someone else's love letter. Like, Get that in your mind for a minute. Like you're reading somebody else's love letter. In this letter, as you study it, you're going to find Paul hearing things, uh, hear Paul saying things like this. He's going to say things like, and I hold you in my heart. It's a very affectionate thing to say. "I I yearn for you with all of the affection of Christ Jesus. You are my beloved whom I love and long for my joy and my crown. You see, it's as though in this book, it's as though Jesus, through the Apostle Paul, is actually loving the Philippians enough to to not only embrace them right where they're at in all of their messiness, but he's also loving them enough to correct them both gently and firmly. We can't forget well, the Apostle Paul uses really emotionally compelling words to express his affection for the Philippians, he also uses some very direct language to correct some things in the Philippians. He's correcting this infection of self-centeredness and pride and complaining and arguing and disagreements and division in the Philippian church. See, the Apostle Paul knows that to love someone really well in the midst of the battle against spiritual disease, to do that well, he's going to have to lovingly embrace the Philippians. And he's also going to have to lovingly correct the Philippians at the same time. And the only thing, the only thing that's going to empower, or enable this kind of a loving embrace, this kind of loving correction, as if the crucified, risen, and returning Christ is at the center of everything. Like the only thing that's gonna help me and you to stand firm in the joy of Christ while working out our own salvation in Christ as we put on the mind of Christ is to keep the crucified and the risen and the returning Christ at the center of everything. So, how does Paul get after this in Philippians chapter 1 verses 3 through 8? How does Paul lovingly embrace, like wrap his arms around the Philippians as he also speaks into their ear and lovingly corrects them? How does he do that? Let's look at it. Philippians chapter 1 verses 3 through 8, we read, Paul saying, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Of Christ Jesus. So the Apostle Paul says an awful lot here in these six short verses, right? Here's my summary. He says, I'm thankful for you in verse three. He says, I have a fond memory. I have fond memories of you in verse three. I'm praying for you in verse four. I'm overjoyed because of you. We are not alone. We're in this together, right? I'm convinced that God is going to finish the work that He started in you. I love you as a partner and as a partaker in God's grace. Because of you, I know that I'm not alone in my circumstances and I miss you deeply. That's the sense of what Paul says in these verses, right? Like, you can't miss. The loving embrace. This picture, uh, almost like a dad, a father, grabbing his kid, wrapping him up in his arms, and saying, Man, I love you and I miss you. You can't miss that in these words that Paul's written here. Yet at the same time, um, these words are are also loving correction. Okay? Uh, Paul, he's not just merely piling on um, some really nice words. To butter up his listeners before he drops the hammer, so to speak. Uh, It's important to notice that, that Paul uses a combination of the words all and always and every. Those three words, he uses a combination of those words seven times in these verses. That's significant. Seven times he uses a combination of those words. See, those three words, all, Always, every they're 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 expansive. Okay, they're, they're arms open kinds of words. They're encompassing kinds of words. They're uh they're they're wide kinds of words. And they're meant to help meant to help us understand uh the, what Paul says here. I mean, it's not just aimed at a select few troublemakers in his church family. These words that Paul are are using, they're, they're meant for everyone. See, the extent of Paul's heart for the Philippians is broad, and it's super intense. He's not just emotionally disconnected, and he's not just aiming at one or two troublemakers in the church family. See, the extent and the intensity of Paul's love for these Philippians Uh, Along with the extent and the intensity of his desire to correct his listeners? I mean, it continuously runs off the page throughout this book with every word that he writes. Like, let's not forget where the Apostle Paul is. He's writing this letter from prison and he's writing it to a very diverse crowd, right? think about it, we know at the very least that his listeners were as diverse as Lydia, the Asian saleswoman, uh, the ex-slave girl who had been released from demonic oppression, and then the Roman prison guard who had previously locked Paul and Silas up in a prison cell. This is a really diverse church family, and Paul deeply loved this hodgepodge little group of believers and because of his deep love for them he wanted to embrace them he wanted to draw them in close and at the same time he wanted to correct the sin that he sees in their lives So these people that he had personally ministered to he had personally witnessed transformation in them he had shared in the ups and the downs of ministry with them These people needed to be lovingly corrected. Why? They needed to be lovingly corrected so that their reputation would be transformed from a family that was previously full of self-centeredness and pride and complaining and arguing disagreements and divisions. We wanted to see them transformed from that kind of a church family into a church family that constantly puts on the mind of Christ, constantly works out their own salvation in Christ, and constantly stands firm in the joy of Christ as they do what? As they kept the crucified, risen, and returning Christ at the center of their hearts and minds. This is Paul's aim. So how does Paul get after this in verses 3 through 8? How does he seek to lovingly embrace them, to pull them in, and to at the same time speak into their ear and lovingly correct this beloved church of broken people. How does he get after this? I think the answer to those questions, just simply, Paul opens up his heart. That's really what he does. What we read here in these verses is deeply personal. It's as though he opens up his heart in a very vulnerable And transparent way. Now listen, when you think about the words vulnerability and transparency, uh, they're dangerous words. Uh, They can be kind of scary words for most of us, okay? And here's the reason why. Vulnerability and transparency can get you in trouble with other people, right? because it allows other people to see the messiness, the junk that's really deep down inside of you, when you stop glossing things over and you start talking about the reality of your anger, your frustration, your anxiety, your worry, your doubt, your fear, your lust, When you start talking about the reality of those things present in your heart, it can be very dangerous because you're letting other people see the real you deep down inside. Now here's the thing for the Apostle Paul and for us, it's a very dangerous thing to practice vulnerability and transparency, especially if you have legalists and moralists in the room. And here's the reason why. Legalists and moralists can't be honest about their shortcomings. Okay, They just can't be. Uh, They can't be honest and transparent and vulnerable about their sin. The reason why is that a legalistic person and a moralistic person, something that we all have a tendency to, uh, when we slip into those um, shoes, uh, we're more concerned at that point with keeping up, appearances, right? It's this appearance of godliness rather than growing in true godliness. Now, Paul in other places in scripture, specifically 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, talks about that kind of an issue. And let's not forget, let's not forget where the apostle Paul is at, right? As we're talking about legalistic, moralistic tendencies and Paul being vulnerable and transparent, he's in chains, right? Right? He's in prison. He's chained to a Roman guard. And he's chained to that guard while writing this letter, not because some big, bad, unbelieving Roman official out there came in and swooped in on Paul and told him, you can't preach the gospel anymore. That's not what happened. That's not who's oppressing Paul. Paul is in these chains because his legalistic, and moralistic religious opponents had placed him there. So what does Paul do? What does he do in these circumstances? He becomes vulnerable and transparent with this beloved church in Philippi because he knows that the gospel has freed him to do this. He also knows that the Philippian believers, what they need is an authentic model of what it actually looks like to keep the crucified and risen and returning Christ at the center of everything. So because he knows that, Paul simply expresses his heart here in a very vulnerable and transparent way as he lovingly embraces and corrects the Philippians. Let's look at the first thing that we see. The first thing that I notice in verse 3 about the Apostle Paul is that he has a massive heart of gratitude. He's got a heart that's full of gratitude, thankfulness. And you think about this for a minute, right? What do you need when you are sick with the infection of self-centeredness? When you are sick with the infection of pride, when you start to complain about things, when you start to argue with everybody around you because you just have to win the fight, when you are stuck, you've locked horns, you're in disagreement with a whole bunch of people around you, when you recognize that there's division in your relationships, what do you need the most? Seems to me that a good old-fashioned dose of affectionate gratitude just might Do the trick here, right? Um, Paul, you think about Paul. He could have sat back in his jail cell, right? Could have sat back in his jail cell, chained to that Roman guard without any privacy. Could have sat there shaking his head in really self-centered pride at the antics of the Philippian church. He could have complained to the guards about these immature believers. He could have couched it in all sorts of religious language, right? Like, I'm just righteously indignant at that silly little church. How could they act this way while I'm sitting here in prison? They call themselves Christians? Like, that could have been Paul. He could have spouted off some really argumentative words he could have let the philippians know just how disappointed he was with them how he disagreed with them vehemently but that's not the way paul rolls right instead the apostle paul chooses to express his heartfelt gratitude for them he says man i thank my god in all my remembrance of you now my friend mike sander i have to quote him Um, He reminded me uh, last week uh, that while we often say that actions speak louder than words, reactions speak louder than actions. Because here's the deal. You can train yourself to act a certain way and behave a certain way in front of certain people, but your reaction to something speaks louder than those actions. Not that those actions aren't important. Reactions speak louder than actions, which tells me that reactions speak louder than your words. See, Paul is reacting. He's reacting to his knowledge that the Philippian church is infected with sin. And his reaction is kind of like a vaccination, right? It's like a vaccination as he vulnerably and transparently expresses his gratitude, his thankfulness for them. Gratitude basically inoculates the infection of self-centeredness and pride and complaining and arguing and disagreements and division. See, Paul knows deep down inside, and he deeply believes that the Philippians are actually gifts from God in his life. And so he gives thanks to God for them. Here's my question for you. Who are you thankful for today? let Let me press that question a little further. Who are the really tough people in your life? Who are the really tough people in the world out there that you need to be grateful for? thankful for the people that are hard to deal with uh, those people are gifts from god too because they're meant to act like sandpaper on your heart meant to reveal the reactionary impulses of your heart when they rub you the wrong way instead sadly most of us want to focus on the fact that they rubbed us the wrong way how dare they rather than focusing on what needs to happen in the reactions of our hearts. Does your heart well up in gratitude? Is that your reaction to difficult, hard people? How about the second thing? second like thing we notice is a heart of joyful prayer, verse 4, right? Now, it's often been said uh, that it's really hard to stay angry with someone when you genuinely pray for them. Okay, It would seem that the Apostle Paul... In these verses, uh, it would seem that he would have a a good reason, uh, at least a good reason, to be righteously angry with the Philippian believers, given the circumstances of his current situation. He's in chains for preaching the gospel. The people that he loves deeply, they're acting like selfish fools, right? Um, They're slipping into being concerned for their own welfare. They're spinning out in spiritual pride. They've given themselves over to complaining about their circumstances rather than being content. They've become preoccupied with arguing amongst themselves. They're divided over these little disputes that have become these major disagreements. How do you stop the madness, right? How do you stop this kind of madness and bring people back to their senses? Well, here's what Paul does. He says, I'm praying for you joyfully. Catch that. I like praying for you joyfully, right? Uh, He's not praying for them that God would draw firebombs down from heaven and rain judgment on them, right? He's praying for them joyfully. He models for these believers what it looks like to walk in the freedom of the gospel despite your surrounding circumstances. He expresses what I think is authentic, real, genuine, not fake, not pretend, not plastic face. Oh, I love you, brother or sister. I'm praying for you. Well, deep down inside, it's like, I can't believe they act that way. Right? And then you go home complaining to your wife or your husband or your kids about them. That's not what Paul's doing. I think Paul's being authentic, genuine in his joy-filled practice of praying for these believers so that they can see, observe, that he's lovingly embracing and correcting them at the same time. What is it that motivates Paul to pray with joy despite his surrounding circumstances, despite any frustration that he uh, is feeling about the Philippians? And the answer is this. The Apostle Paul knows that that they belong to one another He knows that they belong to each other and they belong to each other because of the work of Jesus at the cross and the empty tomb which brings me to the third thing that we see in Paul in Paul we see a heart of belonging in verse five see when do you feel the most alone when is that for you when do you feel the most alone You see, when I uh, begin to think that I am all alone in my circumstances, nobody is experiencing what I'm experiencing, right? In those moments, I begin to get a little bit more self-centered. I think about poor, pitiful me, right? That's what I do. I pridefully begin to think that the world revolves around me and all of my problems. I start complaining about all of the things that frustrate me and just make me angry begin to argue, with everyone around me, my circumstances are worse than yours, fall into this trap of believing that uh, minor disagreements, secondary disagreements are actually primary, major reasons for division. And the result of this cycle is that while I began and I started with feeling alone, um, I end that whole cycle feeling more alone than I did to begin with. It's an ugly cycle. And there's one word for all of it. It's called sin, right? The Apostle Paul, I think, knows that if he's going to make any headway in repairing the damages of the sin that has infected his flock, uh, then he's going to have to remind the Philippians that none of us really are alone. and, And that in reality, if we're believers, we actually belong to one another. You see, the same spirit that gives us a brand new heart when we get saved and begin following Jesus, that very same spirit adopts us into the family of God. And he's the very same spirit who then produces true unity between very diverse people. I mean, think about Paul's audience. Why would an Asian slave woman and a young ex-slave, ex-demon-possessed girl and a Roman prison guard. Why would those three people ever partner together and say, I belong to you? Why? It'd be much easier for the Asian uh, saleswoman to go gather up some more Asian salespeople. It'd be much easier for the ex-slave girl, ex-demon-possessed girl to go find some other people that are just like her. It'd be much easier for the prison guard to go find some more prison guards, right? They belong to each other. But the crazy thing is that in the kingdom of God, these very diverse people all belong to each other. The reality is that we belong to each other as a diverse crowd of people because of the gospel. Jesus didn't die just for one kind of person. Paul reminds the Philippians that they have experienced this kind of unity, this kind of belonging in the gospel when he says he's been praying with joy for the Philippians in verse 5 because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. What he's saying is that we can be released from our selfishness, from our pride from our complaining attitudes from our silly disputes from our stupid arguments and we can be released from those shackles those chains by remembering that we all belong to one another because of the crucified risen and returning christ you see the message of the gospel is this the message of the cross it's this it's a message that reminds us that we are not alone But in fact, we are partners in Christ. We are united to Christ. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. These are massive categorical pictures that we don't have time to work through this morning. But we are united, intrinsically tied to Jesus. Therefore, as Christians, as believers, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are family in Christ Jesus. We belong to one another in Christ. You can be assured of this. You've trusted in Jesus, uh, which then brings me to my next observation from the text in verse 6, right? See that Paul, in this verse, has a heart of assurance. Here's the thing about difficult circumstances. Difficult circumstances, uh, they have a tendency, major tendency, to bring out the worst in us, right? our fears. Our anxiety, our mistrust, our selfishness, our arrogance, our self-reliance, our anger, our lust, all of it, all of it comes bubbling out when tough times set in. When tough times roll across the headlines on our TVs, what happens? Our hearts get squeezed and what comes out of us, what comes out of those hearts then actually proves what's going on inside of us, proves what we rely on. Proves uh, what we lean on for assurance. Proves where we turn to for security. Proves where we look to for acceptance and affirmation. You see, when hard times come, uh, we search desperately for something that will give us some kind of assurance of what the future may hold. The things might go back to normal, right? Right? That our spouse will remain faithful. That our kids will get their acts together. That our jobs will be secure. That our cars won't break down. That our bank accounts won't be empty. That our health will remain intact. See, the point is, is that all of us, deep down inside, we long for, we desire, we desperately want Assurance. We want security. We want acceptance. We want affirmation. We want control. We often look for that assurance in the physical realm. Paul, Paul doesn't rest his heart on some kind of cheap, uh, momentary physical assurance. He knows. Paul knows that while anything good in this physical life is definitely a gift from God, he knows that nothing will give the human heart any kind of authentic assurance outside of the work that God is doing and will continue to do in his children until the job is done. So you and I, we often start things that we don't finish. But the truth is, God never starts something that he doesn't finish. He never leaves a job half done. This is why Paul says, I am sure of this. I'm sure of this assurance that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul is simply saying what I've already said. He's saying that he is convinced that God will finish what he started. God doesn't leave projects half done. He completes what he begins. The work that God will complete in us if you and if I have trusted in Christ crucified, risen, and returning. It's the Spirit's work of turning stone dead people into living, loving replicas of Jesus. That's what God is up to. Through the work of His Spirit, He's turning stone dead people into living loving replicas of Jesus you see the God who finishes what he begins lets nothing limit the extent of the salvation that he achieves both for and in the people that he rescues the reality of that is that I can preach to my heart that the work of God in me is not stopped by my failure okay That doesn't give me license to go sin. If that gives me license to go sin, the question is, well, then is God actually doing work in my heart, right? Do I really comprehend that? Because here's the thing, the work of God in me is not stopped by my failures, my self-centeredness, my pride, my complaining, my arguing, my disagreements, my division. That sin does not nullify God's work of salvation in and through me. My right standing before God is not changed by my sin. Uh, That's a picture of grace and mercy. This is the kind of grace and mercy that motivates true obedience, real authentic transformation. This is the grace and the mercy that all believers are bound together by, which brings me to uh, my next observation again. In verse 7, we see in Paul a heart of fellowship. We see a heart of fellowship. Once again, Apostle Paul returns to a theme of belonging from verse 5, right? When he says this in verse 7, says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all. Now, quick note, that word feel, is, it, it, it doesn't, it's not just about emotional feeling. Um, That word feel in the Greek is a connection between the heart and the head. It's both a knowing and a feeling together. The word for that uh, would better be rendered, I am convinced. It's right for me to be convinced this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace. Another word uh, outside of convince would be convicted. It would be right for me to be convicted this way about you all. My head and my heart, the way that I think and the way that I feel, are tied together. And I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. Both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. You see, what Paul is saying here is that he loves the Philippians as partners and partakers and fellow recipients of God's grace. Okay, the word partnership from verse five and the word partakers in verse seven. Uh, This is the word that we commonly call fellowship, okay? Fellowship is, is much more than just an emotional feeling. It comes from the word in the Greek koinonia. That's the Greek word. And that word simply means to share something intimately. It's a sense of being connected, Kind of like a ligament is connected to a bone. It's that kind of deep connection that this word koinonia brings to the text. In biblical thought, uh, the concept of fellowship here is much, much deeper than just a physical fellowship where we share belongings with each other or food with each other or even physical touch with each other. Although at times in the Bible it is used for that. In most places, it means something much deeper than that, and even those things on the physical surface are flowing out of something on a deeper level. The idea here with this word koinonia, fellowship, is that we are a fellowship of God's grace, okay? That's like the glue that holds the ligament to the bone, that holds us together. You see, God's grace is that glue that cements us together, like super glue, for all of eternity. Now, i not put that in your mind for a minute. I want you to think about that, okay? Glued together for all of eternity with other believers by the grace of God think about the eternal nature of our being cemented to each other it's probably not so hard to think about when you think about all the believers that you just love so dearly right Well, how about the believers that rub you the wrong way (laughs) you know uh, there's been arguments between the Baptists and the Methodists and the Lutherans and the Pentecostals and the Catholics for eons right oh boy heaven's going to be full of All sorts of diverse people held together like a ligament to a bone, belonging to one another in fellowship, true koinonia, by what? By the grace of God. Paul knew this kind of grace. He knew it, not just in a headway. He knew this in an experiential way. He had experienced the grace of God. And you can see this in the re, the way that he responds to other people even who are preaching the gospel for selfish motives, okay? You could just flip forward in your Bibles. I'm not going to work through it today. We will in a few weeks. But in Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, just look at the way that he responds to them. It's because he understands and he's experienced grace. God's grace in Paul's life Had dealt a death blow to Paul's self confidence, to Paul's pride. It exposed the misguided arrogance that had lurked beneath the surface mask of Paul's pious law keeping activity. Okay, Paul used to be one of the best legalistic moralists in town until he had a real encounter with true grace in the presence of Christ. Look at Galatians 1 11 through 17 and you'll see it all over the page. This same grace that had dealt a death blow to Paul's heart and at the same time dealt a life blow to it bringing it to true life. That same grace constantly answered the accusations of Paul's insecure conscience and it assured him that the gift of Christ's righteousness actually provides a firm foundation for confidence in the Lord's approval. What more could you and I really want as broken sin-infected people other than to have the Lord's approval? To have God the Father, step into your life in the messiest of sinful moments and embrace you, wrap his arms around you and to speak into your ear and say, I see you. I see all that mess and I love you completely. Like that's the kind of embracing correction lovingly that every one of us needs. The affirmation that God has accepted us. This kind of grace in Christ Jesus through his work at the cross, this kind of grace was the glue that bonded Paul's heart to the hearts of the Philippians. And it's the same glue that would also cure the Philippians of their self-centeredness, their selfish pride, their complaining hearts, their gossip-filled arguments, their inflated disagreements, and their petty divisions this grace would do that. You see, Paul's conviction here, what he's convinced of is that grace is the medicine that deals the death blow to every strain of sin that can infect a church body. You see, being a constant recipient of God's grace, it turns you, listen, into a dispenser of God's grace. Because what you put in is what comes out. I always tell people, man, garbage in, garbage out. You you sit there and you contemplate and you think about garbage, what's going to come out of you? Garbage. But if you put godliness in, guess what comes out? Godliness. If you put grace in, guess what comes out? Grace. Being a constant recipient of God's grace turns you into a dispenser of God's grace and catch this when the church becomes full of dispensers of God's grace what happens the gospel becomes front and center in the church the gospel gets defended the gospel gets confirmed you see this is the beauty of God's grace a true real authentic genuine encounter with true grace in the presence of Jesus it puts skin and clothing on the gospel. And this is what it means to have a heart of fellowship in God's grace. Sixth thing that we see, and it's the final thing, in Paul, in the text, is a heart of affection. It's almost like he comes all the way back around to almost where he started here. Comes back to a heart of affection. Think about that. How how difficult is it for you to truly, uh, emotionally, thoughtfully, affectionately express your love for someone even when they fail to meet your expectations? When fellow Christians, and, and let me tell you something. When you and I can't or won't do this for fellow Christians, um, we we can't and won't do this for unbelievers either. But when fellow Christians and unbelievers around us in the world, when their offenses, when their defects loom large in our minds, that happens simply because we have lost sight. Of the marvel that all of us are recipients of God's abundant grace at some level or another. All right? Even for an unbeliever, the air that we all breathe is evidence of the extension of God's common grace to all of us. Paul is able to express his deep affection for the Philippians here when he says, God is my witness. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And when he says this, he's simply saying here that he misses the Philippians dearly, deeply, despite their inconsistencies, despite their failures, despite their foolishness. You see, in these final words, what we see is we see the depth, once again, of the Apostle Paul's deep compassion and affection For really messy, really misguided, really sin-infected people. And here's the thing. It's not that the Apostle Paul has a problem with using sharp words or harsh words to correct and to inoculate the infection of sin in the church. Paul's writings to uh, other churches and even to the Philippians later on down the road in, 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 in other chapters, that those he's going to have words that are going to be laced with some harshness for sure. And sometimes harshness, being sharp with your words, sometimes that's exactly what the doctor orders, right? You get someone's attention. But even harshness, even sharp words must be tempered with compassionate, grace-filled affection if the pill is going to do its work. See, This is why the Apostle Paul expresses his heart of affection for the Philippians. He knows that affection will effect the transformation that he longs for. Affection is what's going to effect the transformation he longs for. In conclusion here, um, we've taken a peek, right? We've kind of eavesdropped on some of the opening lines of Paul's corrective love letter to the Philippian church. Uh, we've listened in as Paul shares his heart with the Philippians vulnerably, transparently. Uh, we, we've heard him say things like this. We heard him saying? I'm, I'm thankful for you. I have fond memories of you. I'm praying for you. I'm, I'm overjoyed because of you, man. We're not alone. We're in this together. We belong to each other. I'm convinced that God's going to finish what he started in you. I love you as a partner and partaker in God's grace. I'm so thankful that we belong to each other. And because of you, I know that I'm not alone in my circumstances right now. I miss you deeply. This is what Paul's saying. We can see the the extent, the breadth, the width, and the intensity, the depth of Paul's loving embrace and his loving correction of the Philippian church family. We know that Paul sees the self-centeredness. He sees the pride. He sees the complaining. He sees the arguing. He sees the disagreements. He sees the division in the Philippian believers. Paul also sees The crucified, risen, and returning Christ standing right in the middle of the mess. He knows that Jesus will finish the work that he began in his friends. Paul has no problems of being transparent and vulnerable with the Philippian church. Why? Because he knows that his expression of transparent and vulnerable love, this expression is going to gently embrace and gently correct his friends' wayward hearts. See, so when I hear Paul speaking the way he does in this love letter, I hear the voice of my Savior, Jesus, speaking to me. And The question is, is can you hear Jesus speaking to you now? It's the simplest uh, yet most profound discipleship question we can ask one another. It's a question we ask quite often in our church family. What are you hearing Jesus say to you right now through his word? There's the things I can hear him saying. I hear him saying, hey, I see you and I love you and I see every nasty part of you and I love you with every ounce of my being. I'm grateful to my father for giving you to me. I'm asking my father to give you every spiritual blessing he has for you. You're not a disappointment to me. Even when you act Foolishly, I, I still love you and I accept you and I cherish you. We belong to each other because of my work at the cross and the empty tomb. And I'm returning to take you home with me very soon. Don't despair. My spirit is at work in you. And the day that I take you home is the day that my work in you will be complete. You do have some imperfections in you right now. I see them. But really, those are just thorns in your side. And those thorns are meant to keep you focused on me. My grace is sufficient for you. I miss you. And I can't wait till we can be together again. See, it's been said that the Bible is 66 love letters from God to us. You can take a peek at it anytime you want to. And the question is, as we've taken a peek at this love letter today, how is Jesus speaking to you? How do you hear him expressing his loving embrace and his loving correction over you? How is he walking up to you and wrapping his arms around you like a loving father and saying, hey, I see you, I see everything about you, and I'll love you what's he saying to you today father thank you for your word pray god that you would use uh, this message use your word to effect uh, transformation in our hearts in our lives help us to experience your loving embrace help us to hear your loving correction in our lives and help us to be authentic, vulnerable, and transparent about the work of your Son, Jesus, in our hearts. trust you to do this work. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska, that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.TheWellHastings.com.